We're going to read from God's Word this morning. Um, We've been reading in these Advent weeks from the last book of the Bible, from the book of Revelation, and we've read the first chapter and we've read the last chapter, so we're going to read one of the middle ones. So we're going to read from chapter 7, verse 9 in the book of Revelation. This is a vision in picture language which is given to John on the island of Patmos, showing him not so much what will happen in the future, is whose future it all is. Let's hear the word of God. After this I looked, and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, They were wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures They fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These, in white robes, Who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are those who have come through the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst, and the sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. And thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word to us. Your word of encouragement. Your word of promise. And as we contemplate it this morning, we pray that by your Spirit you would open it to us, not just that we might understand it with our heads, but that we might grasp it with our hearts. Amen. The book of Revelation is a vision that is given on the island of Patmos to St. John. Almost certainly this John is 
the John who was one of the twelve disciples. He may well have been the person who wrote the Gospel of John, the letters of John. They all bear a similar, a similar tone in their writings. But at this point in his life, John is a very old man. He's a man who has, as people might say, living beyond his years. And if he muses on the past, then it may well be on the empty places. Perhaps we know that even as we think about Christmas, as we, as we go on in years, there are more of them, aren't there? The empty places. And as he thinks back on his life, he might remember those that have gone before him. There was his brother James, the two of them, setting out as young men, as fishermen, back then on the shores of Galilee. Oh gosh, they didn't think what was going to come next. They were two hot-headed young guys. They were called the Sons of Thunder, which can't have been a great nickname. Well, it's a sort of wonderful nickname, but in the other sense of it, it must have indicated that these were two guys that got up to all sorts. Then they'd been called by Jesus. But that was 60 years or so ago. 60 years. And James, John's brother, was gone 50 of them. He'd been killed by Herod right there in the book of Acts, some 50 years before. And Peter, he was gone at this stage. And Andrew, and Thaddeus, and Nathaniel, and he could go through them all one by one. All of them were gone at that great age. And here is John, he's in his 90s probably. He should have been long retired, but he's kept preaching the gospel. He's kept preaching the gospel to the point that he has been banished to the island of Patmos. And in the days that he's now seeing, things are not good. These are tough times. The Roman Empire has finally taken notice of the tiny little church, but it has not noticed it in a good way. It is coming with all its might to stamp it out. The emperor Domitian is beginning the first orchestrated attack on the church. Some of them are being martyred. Others are being scorned, rejected in their communities because they won't play with the gods of the city or the town or the trade guild, or the business community that they're part of. And so they are in places where they're being shunned by their families and shunned by their neighbors. Some of the Christians are even giving up and going back to the pagan gods because it's easier. John's heart, as he thinks on all of that, must be broken. That's the context that this old man is given a vision. Now, you might have thought that God would have given him a, a lovely, nice vision, you know? It'll be fine. Just wait a minute or two. I'm going to sort everything out. It'll be fine. You know? Pat you in the head and give you a wee bit of old-time religion so that you can think, yeah, it's great. But actually, that's not what John's vision is at all. I mean, we read it today and we're confused by it. John would have been confused by it as well. And it's terrifying if you begin to read through Revelation because there's chapter after chapter of, of, of giant beasts and dragons and double-headed monsters. And we don't understand it all, but we get the gist. It's no good. It's quite violent. It's bad stuff that's going to happen on the world. 
And it's pointing in all sorts of different ways to, to images of injustice and oppression and, uh, and, and the state bearing down on you and all sorts of things. It's interesting that as Christians have read that through Christian history, they've always seen the difficulties of their own age. Whether it's been the 30-year war in Europe or it's been the rise of the Nazis or whatever else it is. People see whatever is in their own age. And, and, and we look later on and say, oh, they were wrong because that wasn't the end. But I, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure and it's not written that every Christian in whatever age they are would see the injustices and the evils and the oppressions and the problems of the world that's around them. Not so much a map of time as it's a map of all times. You know, it is very easy for preachers to give people comforting cliches. You know, folks say that to us, don't they? You, if you're going through difficult times, how many of you are going through difficult times? Somebody said things like, it'll get better. You ever had someone say that to you? It'll get better. Cheer up, it'll get better. It won't always be like this. You had folks say that to you? How do they know that? It might do. We hope it does. But there's many a time we've gone through something and thought, it can't get worse than this, and it has. You know, it's dead easy to say comforting things that are not true. Or at least you've got no right to say them because you don't know that they're true. You know, I, I, I remember in, in, in 1997, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be very political here, but remember Tony Blair when he came to office? And you remember the mad crowds that were, were all outside Downing, Downing Street. And what was the tune? Dream. Things can only get better. Now, I'm not going to get political. Did they get better? Well, answers on a postcard. Some of us might think that they definitely did. Some of us will have other opinions. That's okay. But how do you know that? Things can only get better. Could have been a world war. Could have anything could have happened. Nobody knows that. And the one thing we might see, whatever Dream said, this dream that comes from God isn't going to lie. It's not going to give people comforting things. And yet, and yet, this dream is given to John for a very practical reason. It is given to John that he might give it to the churches that are struggling so much to enable them to keep going, to keep persevering, to keep believing, to keep hoping, to stand in there no matter what happens and make a difference and be effective because they're staying close to God. But he doesn't do it by giving them rubbish cliches. And I am sorry for all the times as a pastor I've given people rubbish cliches. Rather it comes with something far deeper. Because what is given here is a vision of God. Of God. Revelation, as we said, is an unveiling. A pulling back the curtain. Not that John would know all the details of what's going to happen in the future. That's to misread Revelation entirely. But to see the reality. And here is the reality that is shown in this vision and in many others. Is there is a throne... And it is not empty. There is a throne. And it is not empty. And this is the testimony. That is given continually in scripture. Whatever is happening. However chaotic. However evil. However much it doesn't seem to get any better. 
it is not meaningless. Because there is a God, and as much as you and I can't understand it any more than we can understand the book of Revelation, that God is in charge. That God is in charge. Verse 10 here. They cried out a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is Sunday school stuff, but it's, it, it's really at the heart of it. He's got the whole world in his hands. And if that's not true, then let's give up now. Let's pack up the Christmas trees and close the churches and forget the whole thing. And if that is true, then we have no need to be afraid. But as simple as that is, it's also profoundly difficult. It would be very easy if we could simply say, God is in charge, therefore everything will be okay tomorrow, the next day, a year from now. But we know this isn't the case, don't we? And sometimes folk, when suffering comes, they sort of say, oh, I, I've just discovered that it's, 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 God doesn't look after you. I, I, I don't understand this. But here's the thing, every person of faith there has ever been, right far as the book of Psalms has wrestled with the same question. You can't have a faith unless you wrestle with this. Because if God is sovereign, it raises a whole host of questions. And yet, Revelation won't answer all of those. But it will simply reassure us of God. I was uh, reading yesterday or the other day on, on, on Twitter and Tim Keller, who is an American preacher, he's, he's, he's someone whose books I've read a lot of and um, whose work is, 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 is inspirational. And he tweeted out, I have stage four pancreatic cancer. And he went on to say, but it is endlessly comforting to have a God who is both infinitely more wise and more loving than I am he has plenty of good reasons for everything he does and allows that I cannot know. That I cannot know. If we expect to get our heads around this and understand everything, then we are expecting to be God, not be held by him. Revelation doesn't pretend that everything is okay. Rather, it sits and it points to God on the throne and it says, this is our hope of deliverance and salvation. Salvation belongs to God, not about what you can fix or I can fix. And ultimately, our hope isn't that things will get better. It's in God. Otherwise, it's like a cupboard love. You know, you know, you know when, when, when parents sort of, when kids sort of say, I, I love you, and you, you, you know they're after something. You know? They don't really say they love you. They're saying they love you because they can get your stuff. And here's the thing with our relationship with God. It cannot be covered love. It cannot be, I will trust in God because he'll make things all right. It's I will trust in God because he loves me. Because he loves me no matter what. Even if I go to the cupboard and the cupboard is bare. Yet I will know God's love for me. And here's the interesting thing also about this. And it only struck me as I began to read it yesterday. Salvation belongs to our God. 
the problems that that brings. But then what does it say? Who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And to the Lamb. And later on, it will say that the Lamb sits on the throne. Now, big giveaway, big reveal. The Lamb is Jesus, okay? You probably guessed that before I took you there. But why is that really significant? Remember who this is written to. This is written to John. John, whose life was formed by that three years he'd spent with Jesus. It started when he was a disciple of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And he spent the next three years with Jesus. And on the last night that he spent with Jesus on earth was the Passover where the Lamb was sacrificed. He knew that Jesus was the Lamb. And so it's not just that John is saying in some sort of philosophical sense, well, I know there's a God and God is in charge of things, like some folks say, and then we say there's all sorts of problems. No, what John is saying is the Jesus that I know. The Jesus that has loved me. The Jesus that I have known all my life and I have prayed to and I have related to and has been there. He's in charge. And that makes a huge difference because as Christians, we are not philosophers who say we have a philosophy that there is one God and he made the world and you know, that's a good thing to believe in. And then we, we talk about the intellectual problems with that. No, that's not what we have at all. We believe in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God that we know because we know Jesus. What's God like? Here, read the gospel stories. Know him, pray to him. And you see, for John, this was immensely immensely, immensely personal. I look to heaven and I know not just there's a God in charge, but Jesus is in charge. Wow. And you see, the second thing here is Jesus is described as a lamb. Now, there's lots of metaphors that are used of Jesus, in the, even in the book of Revelation. At one point, he's called the lion. You know? On the throne is God and the lion. That's great. But actually, John picks the lamb quite deliberately because what is a lamb? We go, oh, that's cute, isn't it? It's cute, wee lamb. See, the thing about a lamb is it's vulnerable. That's why it's cute. Most cute things are vulnerable. And in the story that we have, the lamb is sacrificed, the lamb is killed. And you see, what John is saying here is that it's not just that there's some big, powerful God up there and I'm struggling or how they're suffering in the world, but rather, I'm looking at the God who came in vulnerability in the Jesus I knew who cried and wept by the tomb of his friend Lazarus. The Jesus I knew who was hungry when we were hungry. The Jesus I knew who went into danger with us, and it wasn't that he went into danger and everything was fine because he's God and that's great. He went into danger and the most unexpected thing happened. He died. And we were devastated. And we cried and our hope was gone. And he went on the cross and he cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know all that stuff where we think, how can there be a loving God when all this happens? Jesus entered into all of that. And when I look at the throne, I see not just that God has the whole world in his hands, but I look at the hands and they've got holes in them. Hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. As we sing in that hymn, the servant king. That's what John sees as he looks into heaven. He knows this God understands. God with us, God in our suffering and God in our pain. 
And unless we grasp that, the rest of it just becomes words. But look at the vision. I looked out, says John, and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count. They were robed in white robes and were holding palm branches in their heads. Now, sometimes I, I can be bribed. Can you be bribed? Somebody wants you to do something and they say, you'll get this if you do it. Think, yeah, okay. Well, as we, it's easier, isn't it? You, you can say to your kids, if you tidy your room, you'll get the chocolate. Sometimes you mean it, sometimes you don't, because you tell them Santa will not come unless, and you're not actually going to follow through on that one, are you? But that sort of bribes that can keep people going at times, and I suppose even as adults, the hope gets us through stuff. We go through dark days in the hope that something will be better. Maybe just through these dark days of December, thinking, well, it'll soon be Christmas, and I'm looking forward to that. Of course, bribes can sometimes be mean. I, uh, I do always remember as a child going up Loch Lomond with a, a group from the church and my, my sister was with us and, and she was really struggling to get up the mountain as you do. You know, you, you know that bit when you're climbing a, a mountain and you just think, I can't make it. And the folk that were with her in the church said, there's an ice cream shop at the top. Keep going. She got up there and of course, yeah. Uh-huh. Cruel hope sometimes. And that's the problem with saying things can only get better. You're sometimes telling people there's an ice cream shop at the top of the hill. But this vision, this vision that's given to these people to help them endure suffering, to keep them strong, well, they're offered something. White robes and a palm branch. Now, <laughs> I read that at first, I thought, whoopee do. Keep going, go for it. Go through all the struggle and the turmoil and the ordeal and I'll give you a, a Halloween costume. A white robe and a palm branch. You know, wow, great. But what is it that these symbolize? Well, the symbols are so important. First of all, the palm branch is just a symbol of victory. That's why they waved them as Jesus came into Jerusalem, the palm branches. It's the victor. It's the one who has won and seen things through. And here's the amazing thing. What's the contest here? The contest at this point is there's a tiny little church with a few little house groups meeting in cities of the Roman Empire and the whole might of Rome that's conquered the whole world against it. And John says, you win. You're going to be waving the palm branches at the end of this. They'll be digging up the remains of Rome in the ground, the archaeologists, and it's gone. I always liked to have a quip somebody gave me which reminded me that you know, these little Jewish disciples that took on the might of the Roman Empire. And today we name our children after James, John, and Andrew. And we name our dogs after Caesar and Augustus and Nero. The amazing thing that happened factually is that the church was victorious. And, and John says here, there is a great multitude that no one can count. Earlier he says 144,000 and sometimes people read 144,000 and think, well, that's not that many. But actually it was about the biggest number anyone could think of. It's almost as if John was said, how many people will there be in this victory train that will belong to Jesus? And John says, today's terms, he would have said, I don't know, gazillions. A great multitude from every country and land. And by the way, that's true if you do this. This, these word sheets that I've given from the Bible Society, it's a whole map 
of a whole world that the Bible Society is going to tell you about the gospel reaching today. We're on the victory side. We triumph over all these things. Huge. It blows his mind. Imagine John had been shown that 2,000 years from then, a third of the whole planet would own the name of Jesus. Billions of people worshipping him. And today we do need to hear this because sometimes when we hear about the numbers of the Church of Scotland and all the problems, we left thinking, well, God's got defeated. Actually, the gospel of Jesus Christ is growing faster today than it has at any point in the last 2,000 years. It is sweeping through China despite persecution, sweeping through Africa. It is sweeping through South America. It is in the places it is hardest to be a Christian where they are being persecuted and downtrodden. It just keeps growing. Whatever the problems and whatever the disappointments that we face, hear this. We win. That's the message of the book of Revelation. I have had in my head all week one song. And it started in, as I was, I, was, I was with my dad this week and things were tough. He's got dementia and it, it was tough. And I came back and I just kept hearing these words. Some of you will know it. Some of you were there in the 60s as they sang it. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome someday. Deep in my heart, I know it's true. We shall overcome someday. And I went this week and I decided I wanted to know a little bit more about this song. It was sung as one of the civil rights movement songs. And it was written by a chap called Charles Albert Tinsley, or, or at least the song that it was based on was written by him. He was the son of a slave. He never went to school at all. He learned Hebrew from the Jews in the local synagogue. Did a correspondence course to learn Greek and became the pastor of the church where he worked previously as a janitor. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome one day. He grew that church to 10,000, one of the multiracial churches in America by the son of a slave. That's what God can do. That's what we need to hear. Songs of redemption, we shall overcome. And notice the other thing here. It's not just the palm branches waving. They are all these multitude in white robes. And in verse 13, it tells us, as John's asked, who are these guys in white robes? It's an interesting question. John has said, who are these guys in white robes? And I can just imagine John looking closely at them, thinking, that's my brother. That's Peter. That's Andrew. The last time I saw him, he was being crucified. Why? Because he's seeing the martyrs that have come through the great tribulation. He's seen the people that you might have thought been crushed and downtrodden, defeated by all these enemies. And they are wearing white robes, the martyr's robes, and wearing and waving palm branches. And that is one of the important things of the church. The Roman Empire thought it was killing them, that it was wiping them out. You can read this in the book of Acts and you can read it further and further. The more the Roman Empire thought, I'm going to stuff these people, the more they kept growing. 
Tertullian in the third century said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more we try to kill them, the more this movement grows because people look and they say, what is it these people have got in their suffering? The same is true of our Scottish Reformation. 1528, they burnt Patrick Hamilton for preaching the gospel. They burnt him in St. Andrews. And John Knox wrote a few years later, he said, the smell, the reek of Master Hamilton infected all it blew on. What did he mean by that? He meant people saw that sort of suffering for Jesus and said, what has he got? I want to know. I want to understand that. It wasn't because, well, he believed in God and his life was great and that's what I want which is sometimes what we think that attracts us to faith. It was no, it was because he suffered, because he died, because he had life that didn't seem to get better. And I want to know what that's about, because my life doesn't seem to get better. White robes. Now we can think of those that have suffered and witnessed to us, Martin Luther King or William Wilberforce. Columba, so many people that we see as those great, those great people of faith. But, you know, there, there is a little bit of trouble with this because one of the thoughts I had when I, I read this was, how do I get a white robe? How am I in that number? I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. Do I need to earn a white robe? Do I need to suffer like that? Do I need to be martyred that I might be worthy of being in that white robe? How do I get clean to get a white robe? What do I have to do for Jesus to do that? And that sounds really hard. But you know, look at what it says again. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, anyone that does any washing and trying to get stains out knows that metaphor doesn't work, does it? White robe washed in blood, it's a bit of a mess. But you see, what's really important about it is martyrs' robes are usually got because of your blood, aren't they? A person gives their blood for their cause and they get their reward and they, we build them a statue and we do this. John says the blood of the Lamb. It was because Jesus suffered. It was because Jesus died. And any suffering we have in our life that we have as Christians is just an echo of that. And that means that every Christian, even those who say, well, my life is actually not full of suffering. We can't go around saying British Christians are persecuted. Those that are working in the underground church in China and in other countries would look at us and say, what the heck are you on about? Persecuted? Police aren't about to come into your house two in the morning and take you away. Somebody said something to you you didn't like very much. You think you're persecuted. But that's not the point. Because the point and the whole thing of our faith, the whole center of our faith, is that Jesus died. That Jesus is the one whose blood means that we are in that number because we trust in what he's done. His sacrifice is enough for us. And yes, because of that, we hold firm. Because of that, we're willing to go through whatever our deal it is. But it's because we are secure in what he has done. You know, we are about to come to the Lord's table. And this table is symbolic in so many ways. It's symbolic of a great feast that is offered to us in the kingdom of God that we begin to touch on now as we're invited. It's symbolic of the fact that we are a great multitude because this bread and this wine is broken and shared in churches in every part of this world today. And as we do it in this little place together, we do it as part of a worldwide church. But at the center of that is that it is the blood 
the body of Christ that defines. What he did for us that makes us completely secure. That gives us the promise that we shall overcome someday. That makes all the suffering that we might go through, which might get better and might not, absolutely secure. Because of that dream, that vision, of the new heaven and the new earth that is promised to us. And as John says at the end of this, as he's pointed about all this tribulation to come, he says, then the Lord will dry every tear. Amen.